Hey guys, this is Michaela. And this is Amanda. And this is Crime in the Dark. Welcome back, bitches. <laughs> oh, look, we're back again the following week with an episode. It's not a month later. Hi. Hey, here we go. <laughs> we're doing good. Yep. Here. And because this one is kind of a long one, we're not really got a whole lot to talk about. We talked like, about it all in the last one. Exactly. The whole two seconds of info that we had for you guys. So, uh, what are we talking about this week, Amanda? The I-5 killer. Ooh. Yeah, this one was requested by uh, Marla, and so we've been putting it together. And yeah, buckle in, you guys. We finally got it for you. Yeah, it's a doozy, too. So big, big trigger warning. There is, um, it involves, you know, rape, all that kind of stuff. There are things that happen with children, um, different things like that. So just... If it's not something that you want to listen to, then tune in the following week and we'll be back again. We don't take offense. We understand that it's not for everybody. But on that note, let's dive in because this one is going to be a little bit of a long one. So let's talk about Randall Brent Woodfield, born December 26, 1950. He was an American serial killer, a serial rapist, a kidnapper, a robber, a burglar. I hate that fucking word. Who, who was dubbed the I-5 killer or the I-5 bandit by the media due to the crimes he committed along the Interstate 5 corridor running through Washington, Oregon, and California. Though convicted in only one murder, he has been linked to a total of 18 and is suspected of having killed up to 44 people. That's insane. Right? And to only be convicted of one murder. Just right. it, That just blows me away. And let's say with like Dorothea that we talked about last week. Yeah. It's... She was, there was nine on the table and she's only convicted of three. That's a quarter of it. Right? That's just insane to me. So Woodfield was born in Salem, Oregon, the third child of an upper middle class family. His mother was a homemaker and his father was an, an executive at Pacific Northwest Bell. He has two older sisters, one of whom went on to become a doctor and the other an attorney. Though he became a serial killer. And he became a serial killer. I mean, you know, you always have that one odd one in the family. We all have one. The Woodfield family was well-known and respected in their community, and he was raised in Otter Rock, Oregon, a small seaside town approximately eight miles north of Newport. Popular among his peers, he was a football star at Newport High School. Though his childhood was, by all accounts, stable, Woodfield began to exhibit sexually dysfunctional behaviors during junior high school, particularly exposing himself in public and being a peeping Tom, which... That's always, you know, not a good start, mm -hmm. especially when you're in junior high. Uh, while in high school, Woodfield exposed himself to a group of teenage girls on a Yokina Bay Bridge. I don't know if I said that right, but please forgive me. And he was arrested. Um, his football coaches helped conceal the incident to prevent him from being ousted from the team, though his parents forced him to attend therapy after the incident. Good. So that's cool. The coaches were like, no, nah, he's our star parrier. His parents were like, yeah, we're going to go to therapy. So Good parents, at least there. I don't know if they're saying anything else. I don't remember. Right. So after graduating from high school, Woodfield's criminal record was expunged and he attended Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon, later transferring to Portland State University in Portland in 1970, where he played for the Portland State Vikings as a wide receiver. Despite his thriving in college, Woodfield was arrested on several occasions for petty crimes. First, in 1970, for vandalizing the apartment of his ex-girlfriend. Later, in 1972, for public indecency in Vancouver, Washington. 
In 73, he was arrested again for public indecency in Moldemaw County, Oregon. Again, I'm sorry um, if I chop these these names up. Please feel free to let us know politely. (laughs) In 74, uh, he was drafted by the National Football League to play for the Green Bay Packers, but was cut off from the team during training after a series of indecent exposure arrests. Well, he done fucked up his life there. I mean, that kind of sucks. He just was a compulsive flasher, it sounds like. He just wanted to be... That seems like what it came down to. Yeah. I mean, and that sucks that it could have went a different way for him, possibly. I mean, I'm not making excuses, but that's just... Yeah. When you get the insight to it, you're like, whoa. Could have been different, but he chose a different path for himself. Exactly. So, Woodfield ended up playing the 1974 season with the semi-pro Manitowoc Chiefs and worked for Oshkosh Truck. Okay, so now a little back history on him we just got through. Now, let's get into his crimes, which trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning. This is where it gets brutal. So, Woodfield left Wisconsin in late 1974 and returned to Portland, disgraced by his failure to maintain his football career. In early of 75, several Portland women were accosted by a knife-wielding man, forced to perform oral sex, and then robbed of their handbags. Law enforcement responded to the string of crimes by having female police officers act as decoys, which is ah, scary. Mm -hmm. On March 3rd of 75, Woodfield was arrested after being caught with marked money from one of the undercover officers. Upon interrogation, he confessed to those crimes, blaming poor sexual impulse control, which he complained was a result of his use of steroids. In April of 75, so not even a month later, Woodfield pled guilty to reduce charges of second-degree robbery. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but was freed on parole in just four years of July 1979 after her, after serving. Uh, minimal time, apparently. I read that wrong, but yeah, you guys get it. The same. Right? So he went away for for 10 years, but only served four of it. I mean, good behavior. This was just the beginning of his bigger crimes. Other than his indecent exposure, Woodfield was released from prison just in time for his 10-year high school reunion. There, he reconnected with former classmate Sherry Ayers. On October 9th of 1980, Sherry Lynn Ayers, an x-ray technician and former classmate of Woodfield, was raped and murdered in her apartment in the 9,000 block of Southwest 9th Place in downtown Portland. Her body was discovered October 11th by her fiancé. She had been bludgeoned and stabbed repeatedly in the neck. Ayers, a University of Oregon graduate, had known Woodfield since second grade, having attended the same schools in Newport. That's crazy. She, he, I don't know what happened there, but I, my guess is she probably turned down his advances and yep. he took what he wanted from it. That's the assumption. Yeah. So, sorry guys, there's papers, but during Woodfield's prior four-year imprisonment, he and Ayers had corresponded via letters. Suspecting Woodfield's environment... It, and it, suspecting Woodfield's involvement, Ayers' family provided his name to law enforcement. He was questioned but refused to sit for a polygraph test. Homicide detectives found his answers genuinely evasive and deceptive, but because his blood type did not match the semen found in the victim's body, no charges were filed. One month later, on the morning of November 27th, Thanksgiving Day, Woodfield arrived at the North Portland home of Darcy Renee Fix, who was 22, planning to assault her. 
Woodfield had known Fix during college as an ex-girlfriend of one of his close friends, Douglas Keith Altig, 24, was at Fix's home when Woodfield arrived. Both Fix and Altig were subsequently bound and shot to death executional style in the home, and Fix's 32 caliber revolver was missing from the scene. Due to his acquaintance with Fix, Woodfield was questioned about the murders, but law enforcement found no concrete evidence pointing to his involvement. So he's just out here fucking killing motherfuckers like crazy. Right? Just because they can't find any involvement. Right? These are known to be his first three murders. Then he goes on a robbery spree and gets the name the I-5 Bandit on December 9th of 1980. So same year, you guys. Remember, this is December 27th. He killed two people execution style. And on December 9th, he is now robbing people like crazy. So he's wearing a fake beard, held up a Vancouver, Washington gas station at gunpoint in Eugene, Oregon. Four nights later, on December 13th, he raided an ice cream parlor. And on December 14th, he robbed a drive-in restaurant in Albany. During one of the robberies, Woodfield wore what appeared to be a Band-Aid or athletic tape across the bridge of his nose, similar to nasal strips worn by football players. On December 21st, Woodfield again wearing a false beard accosted a waitress this time in Seattle, trapping her in a restaurant bathroom and forcing her at gunpoint to masturbate him. That's fucking gross. On January 8th, he held up the same Vancouver gas station he had robbed in December, this time forcing a female attendant to expose her breasts after he emptied the cash register. Three days later, on January 11th, he robbed a market in Eugene. The next day, January 12th, he shot and wounded a female grocery clerk at the store in Sutherland, Oregon. So, whew, let's take a minute to just take that all in. That's yeah, like a lot. Goes on a huge ass spree and a crazy spree. Insane. So, again, this is a trigger warning even bigger than the last one. Um, it involves children. So... If you need to skip forward a couple minutes, by all means, we understand. This is where you turn it off and tune in next week. We understand, too. Mm-hmm. So, now that we're all here, uh, January 14th, a man matching the description of the I-5 bandit and wearing a false beard evaded a home occupied by two sisters aged 8 and 10. He ordered the girls to undress and sexually assaulted them, forcing the older girl to perform, to perform fellatio. Four days later in Salem, a man matching the same description entered an office building and sexually abused two women, Shari Hall and Beth Wilmot, after which he killed Hall and wounded Wilmot, leaving her for dead. On the 26th and 29th of January, he traveled to Southern Oregon and committed robberies in Eugene, Medford, and Grants Pass. In the later location, two females, a clerk and a customer, were assaulted by him. The murders continue, obviously. This man is just on a whole path. So, again, trigger warning, please. So, and this is really close. Um, Because then he ends up in Redding. Yeah. Um, He's only passing through Redding. Yeah. I think he did a robbery, but... Well, yeah, here we go. So, on... February 3rd, 1981, the bodies of Donna Eckerd, 37, and her 14-year-old daughter were found together in a bed in their home at Mountain Gate, California, north of Redding. Each had been shot several times in the head. Forensic tests showed that the girl had also been sexually assaulted. The same day in Redding, a female store clerk was kidnapped and raped in a holdup. An identical crime was reported in Eureka on February 4th, the next day, with the same man robbing an Ashland, Oregon motel that night. So he's just... All over the place. He's just driving and just killing and raping and robbing. Robbing. Everything. It wasn't that... It was like... This is why he was so 
unfortunately famous during that time and why so many people know him is because of how big of a spree he went on. Yeah. From Washington, Portland, uh, California, and back. Yeah. And all sorts of fucked up. Yeah. Straight up. Uh, excuse me. So five days later in Corvallis, a man matching the I-5 bandit's description held up a fabric store molesting the clerk and her customer before he left. On November 12, 1981, robberies committed by a man matching the I-5 bandit's description occurred in Vancouver, Olympia, and Bellevue, Washington. The Olympia and Bellevue incidents included three sexual assaults. He's just, he's like on a rampage. Mm-hmm. Scary as fuck. Uh, upon an impending visit to Portland, Woodfield planned a Valentine's Day party at the city's downtown Marriott Hotel, inviting uh, friends and acquaintances from college. After no guests came, Woodfield drove to the Beaverton home of 18-year-old Julie Retz, whom he had met while working as a bouncer at the, fas- the Faucet, a bar in Portland. He arrived at her home around 2 a.m. on February 15th. Around 4 a.m., he raped and then shot Rates in the head, killing her. Police investigating the scene determined that Rates had had a glass of wine with her attacker and also began to prepare coffee. A package of instant coffee was discovered on the kitchen counter and water in a kettle had been left to completely boil away. By February 28th, the investigation was now focused on Woodfield, but by then the I-5 bandit had struck three more times. The sad thing is that one was all because Nan showed up to his valentine's day which is so fucking weird like what are you doing what are you doing which i think he even set himself up because who really wants to go to a party on valentine's day they want to hang out with their significant other yeah unless it's like an anti-valentine's day party and you have a bunch of friends that don't have a significant other and that's kind of a thing that you guys do i don't know but in that time in that period i don't think that was a thing back then i don't know it was the 80s i'm like Uh... So, uh, in Eugene on February 18th and 21st, and with another sexual sexual assault in Corvallis on February 25th, detectives in Marion County assembled a call log showing Woodfield had placed calls via calling cards at payphones near the murder sites around the times that they were committed. That's kind of cool that they were able to figure that out. Uh, on March 5th of 1981, Woodfield was brought into the Salem Police Department for an interrogation after Lisa Garcia positively identified him in a photo lineup. His apartment in Springfield, Oregon, was subsequently searched two days later by warrant. Inside, law enforcement discovered a spent 32 shell casing inside a racquetball bag, as well as a roll of tape that matched the tape that found on the victims. On March 7th, Woodfield was taken into custody after being positively identified by several Oregon robbery victims. On March 16th, indictments for murder, rape, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, and illegal possession of firearms were initiated from various jurisdictions in Washington and Oregon. Whew, okay. In the summer of 81, Woodfield was tried in Salem for the murder of Hull as well as charges of sodomy and attempted murder of Wilmot. On June 26, 1981, after three and a half hours of deliberation, Woodfield was convicted on all accounts and sentenced to life in prison plus 90 years. In October of 1981, a second trial was held in Benton County, Oregon, in which Woodfield received sodomy and weapon charges tied to one of the attacks in a restaurant bathroom. Woodfield was convicted by the jury and had an additional 35 years added to his already instated sentence. 
Despite the apparent links with countless other crimes and homicides, Woodfield would not be prosecuted for the majority of the crimes he had believed he was believed to have committed. Unable to afford multiple trials, the state of Oregon was satisfied with Woodfield's existing life sentence. So they're like, we can't afford this. This man has caused so much shit, we can't afford it. Yeah, that's insane. Um, Woodfield is serving his sentences at the Oregon State Penitentiary, Penitentiary in Salem. In October of 1983, he was injured by a fellow inmate during a prison disturbance. In April of 87, he filed a 12 million liberal, liberal suit against Arthur Ann Roll, the author who had written the I-5 killer on account of Woodfield's life and crime spree in 1984. The federal court in Oregon dismissed the lawsuit in January of 88, stating that the statute of limitations on such a lawsuit had expired. By 1990, after the discovery of more victims, Woodfield was suspected in as many as 44 homicides. In 2001 and 2006, DNA testing linked Woodfield to two additional murders in Oregon that occurred from 1980 to 1981. During his time of, in the penitentiary, Woodfield had married three times and divorced twice. What? That fucking blows my mind. When people are like, I married a serial killer. What the fuck is wrong with you? want to what the fuck is wrong with you some letters he wrote from prison were sold online as a collection titled the serial killers letters and published by the charles press so enough about that piece of shit let's go ahead and talk about some of his victims those this is victims that we know of and we also have some possible victims so woodfield never confessed to any of the murders of which he had been accused or linked to though convicted only in the murder of shari hull woodfield had been linked to numerous other murders via dna and other methods criminologists and detectives have proved estimated totaling numbers of killing ranging killings ranging from 25 to as many as 44 unsolved homicides Woodfield is also estimated to have committed at least 60 unsolved rapes. This is the following list of his confirmed victims. That's so, saying that they have proof, mm-hmm. but they're like, we're only convicting you of one. But then again, he is in there for life. Yeah, but it's still all those people that didn't get justice. It kind of sucks. That's where it comes down to it's the people that doesn't that don't get justice. Yeah. Even though there's proof. It's, I mean, they are getting justice, but they're not getting justice. Because there's no, nothing backing up saying he's the one. Yep. So here is his timeline. So 1980, in October 9th, we have Sherry Lynn Ayers, who was 29. She was a former classmate of Woodfield's and was found in her Portland home on October 11th and was bludgeoned and stabbed multiple times in the neck. November 27th, Darcy Renee Fix, who was 22, and Douglas Keith Altig, 24, both found shot to death with a 32 revolver revolver in Altig's Portland home. December 21st, unnamed woman, 25, was assaulted at gunpoint in a Seattle restroom, forced to masturbate. Woodfield, she survived. 1981, January 12th, Susie Bonet, 20, a market clerk in Sutherland, Oregon, shot by Woodfield during the robbery. She survived. January 18th, Sherry Lynn Hull, who is 20, and Belleth Wilmot, who is 20, were employees at a Trans America office in Kaiser, Oregon were accosted by Woodfield during their evening work shift, sexually assaulted both of them before shooting them each in the head. Hull died of her injuries. Wilmot survived. Unnamed woman on February 3rd, 18, kidnapped at gunpoint and raped near Redding, California in the morning hours. She survived. February 3rd, Donna Lee Eckerd, 37, and her daughter, Janelle Charlotte Jarvis, who was 14, were both found sexually assaulted and shot to death in their Shasta County home. 
Uh, February 4th, unnamed woman kidnapped and raped in Eureka, California. She survived. February 15th, Julianne Ritz was raped and shot to death in her Beaverton, Oregon home around 4 a.m. Was an acquaintance of Woodfield's through his job as a bouncer. Uh, These are possible victims. Retracing Woodfield's movements along Interstate 5, law enforcement have identified at least 25 other potential murders, while other estimations suggest up to 44, like we mentioned. Notable is Martha Morrison, who was 17. She disappeared in Eugene in September of 1974 and was found murdered the following month near Vancouver. Her remains were unidentified until 2015. Both Woodfield and Ted Bundy have been considered suspects in her murder. However, after Morrison's remains were identified, law enforcement reached out to the public in an effort to encourage people to come forward with tips. In August of 2017, a blood stain on a pistol owned by a longtime suspect, Warren Leslie Forrest, was matched to Morrison through DNA testing. Uh, during the spring of 1980, Marsha Wetter, 19, and Kathy Allen, 18, vanished while hitchhiking from the Spokane, Washington area to their hometown of Fairbanks, Alaska. Their bodies were found in May of 81. Suspected serial killer Martin Lee Sanders was later connected to their murders, but as of 2018, that case remains unsolved. And those are, so they were possible victims, but they're starting to think that they, it wasn't him, it was someone else. But yeah, so that I thought was going to be a lot longer. But then as I started reading, I was like, I need to get through this because that is a lot to deal with. Mm -hmm. So especially with how intense he is and especially with how he went from that, it's it's, the spree he went on. Exactly. It's just so much, Mm -hmm. just so much. And that's why it doesn't surprise me if there is up to 44 on it. It doesn't surprise me at all. His spree was so wide. Oh, I'm so heartbroken for you, the families. And I know. That sucks that only one was a conviction. Right. And he maintains Of course he does. As what far as I know, it? he's still sitting in jail. Uh, I do believe so. I don't think he has died yet. I don't think so either. Um, um Because I was doing... What was it? Because you can, uh, you know, see people in, you know, jail, you know. Yeah. He's 72 years old. He hasn't died yet. Ew. Gross. Yeah. I hope you have bed bugs, sir. I hope you get bit every single day. I hope you have a, a mysterious rash that just itches uncontrollably. The Fucking ass. Says he was convicted of one link to 18 suspected of involved of 44. Yeah. That's, that's the number. <laughs> 44 and upwards of 60 rapes that's fun time that's so, so you know disgusting. there's never any good way to segue out of this so uh um, mainly talk shit. yeah so basically oh here's something good um positive michaela has a really cool bonus episode coming this month you guys and yes. i'm not gonna tell you but just be on the lookout for the bonus episode because we will be getting it out there soon yes um and other than that uh, we have some new things happening on Etsy. It should be a little bit, but we are excited. Well, it might be sooner since uh, the thing got delivered. Oh, okay. Well, sooner so. than later, it will happen. <laughs> yeah. I just need my sister to now print me out some stuff for yep. me. But that's all we need. Yep. But she'll two-day deliver it. Perfect. Me. Perfect. I'll send that stuff over to my Yeah. Place. So be on the lookout. Um, we're talking about, you know, maybe doing a little giveaway here soon because you guys know come October is our one year. 
So we might be doing some fun stuff for one year. Yep. So for sure, for sure. And if it's, well, we'll we're going to have some fun. So we're not going to put it all out there right now. We're going to, we're going to talk amongst ourselves and then we'll, we'll let you know when it's time. Okay. So stay, see us on Instagram and you'll see it. Yep. And speaking of that, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook on Crime in the Dark. And we've asked you guys a million times. I don't think we asked you last week. But if you have any listener stories, uh, tales, anything like that, you can send them in. We'll get enough of them together like we did for our very first one. And we will have a listener episode. So We'd you, like to have another one. We would like to do that. Would. You know, so you can send your stuff to beautyandcrime22 at gmail.com. And in the meantime, you can support us on Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon. Boom. See, this is why she's here. Also, in the meantime, you can keep it creepy and we can talk next week. Yeah, we will see you next (laughs) week. Oh, we always sound so bad getting off here, but whatever. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.